We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Hello there, folks. Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock, 67 degrees, 610 in the Twin Cities. I uh, hope all of you uh, who have been trying to get to downtown Minneapolis or to St. Paul from that other southern metro area of Minneapolis have been able to find your way around that detour for the 35W closing. MnDOT taking a lot of heat from a lot of politicians and a lot of people about the closing this weekend. Uh, Apparently, it's the beginning of a four-year plan to redo that entire stretch of 35W just south of downtown Minneapolis all the way to the crosstown. And one of the problems is this weekend is one of the busiest weekends all year in the Twin Cities for events. You've got Twins games, you've got the Vikings game, and you've got the marathon, which not only attracts tens of thousands of runners, it also attracts over 200,000 spectators. So uh, I feel your pain, folks. Uh, I did look as I was coming in this this evening about uh, looking look at Highway 100, which is extremely backed up. That is... Uh, the reroute area to get around this, but uh, it is a problem. Listen, we have a great show lined up for you coming up in uh, just a few minutes. We're going to chat with Sue Abderholden. She is the director, executive director of Minnesota NAMI about the issues of mental illness in our jails and prisons. And this is an enormous problem. Sue maintains that if there was better men- mental health counseling on the front side, you, you could really reduce the prison population. But what do we do when we get people who are arriving in prison, perhaps maybe really shouldn't be there? In other words, they're sort of nuisance crimes. These aren't serious offenders. And that is happening in epidemic proportions. There was a very interesting conference earlier this week that I went to. Sue was one of the speakers, so we're going to talk about that. And then coming up in the next half hour, we're going to talk about genetic testing. You know, have you seen those kits? They're everywhere. How accurate are they? What kind of information can they provide? Is there any downside? It's an interesting discussion that I think a lot of people are sharing with their family when they want to try and find out exactly who they are and where their family came from. So let's take a quick break. You are listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. We'll be back to talk about the issue of mental health in our jails and prisons with Sue Adderholden after this. It is 6.15 here. As May Murphy with you on a Saturday evening. I'll be with you until 9 o'clock. In the 8 o'clock hour, I will visit with Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. Uh, the latest uh, controversy involving President Trump, uh, a war of words with, of all people, the mayor of San Juan, Puerto Rico. Uh, the president criticizing the mayor, uh, claiming that she was a poor and ineffective leader after she criticized the federal response to the hurricane relief. Uh, A lot of feedback, a lot of comments on Twitter, on social media about that back and forth. And we'll talk, was it with David Schultz about that? But this uh, time we are going to talk about mental illness in our prisons. I went at a very interesting conference 
earlier this week in which there were a number of uh, members of the East Metro law enforcement, number of sheriffs were there, number of county attorneys, and also Sue Abderholden, who is the executive director of Minnesota NAMI. NAMI is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Uh, Sue weighing in with her expertise. Sue, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Esme. Let, let me ask you, this This was really an impressive conference because of, of the, the turnout you had from top law enforcement officials. What were your thoughts about kind of what was said, and, and do you think that law enforcement has a grasp on how big this problem is? You know, I think they do, and I think they also, after that conference, I felt like they had – um, a broader idea of how to address the problem instead of just focusing on people in their jails, kind of understanding that they had to work with the whole community in order to resolve this. What is and, – and they were talking primarily about people coming into their jails. So this is, mm-hmm. this is where you go when you're arrested. This is not where you go when you're actually sentenced. Then you Correct. go to prison. Uh, can you break that down? I mean, how big a problem is it and what kinds of problems are coming up in the jails that you see when people are first arrested? And then I, I think also a problem is the situation in our prisons. Um, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, in the jails, one of the problems is that a lot of people with a serious mental illness, you know, their symptoms, which are behaviors in the community, get them picked up. And it might be for something very minor, um, you know, nonviolent misdemeanor. And if they don't have money for bail then they sit there. And if they are not competent to stand trial, then they'll be there for often two, three months. And they're not really getting the amount of treatment that they need. Maybe if they're lucky, they're getting some medication, um, but that might be it. And and so we're, they're just sitting there, frankly, getting worse. And so that's a real problem. And what we also see in our prisons is about 25% of the population has a diagnosed mental illness but we don't have anywhere near the resources in our prisons to be providing treatment. All right. As somebody who sits there for three months for disorderly conduct, I mean, obviously that's costing taxpayers an enormous amount of money. Yes. And, and, and that's something I think people need to recognize as well. What, um, in terms of, though, the staff, though, in the jails, I mean, what are you – is there enough um, – because it sounds like, you know, everybody was sort of talking – talking the talk at this conference, but I wondered in reality what really happens on a Friday night at midnight when you've got, you know, all kinds of craziness breaking out and these law enforcement officers are trying to do the best they can. Right. People are typically, there's a screening document that they have to use when people come into jail. We actually passed that legislation back in 2009, which is also why they're more aware of it, that people are coming in with mental health symptoms. Um, but they don't really, you know, they don't all have psychiatrists on staff or therapists or things like that. So people are often getting minimal treatment. And what we think they should look at doing is not necessarily hiring those staff in their jails, but actually contracting with the community mental health center. Because that way, those staff from the community are coming into the jail, and they can also follow the person back out into the community when they're discharged to keep that treatment going, which we think is critical because we really want to reduce that recidivism. All right, let's 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 talk about this because there was a lot of discussion about this screening tool. Mm-hmm. What what kinds of questions are on it? And, and again, you're thinking you're just getting arrested, whether it's for a, a very serious felony or maybe it's a drunk driving arrest or maybe it's disorderly conduct. Uh, maybe it's some kind of a brawl or assault. What, what are some of the questions on there? Well, the questions might be more about, you know, are you feeling depressed? Have you ever been treated? It's a very simple tool. And we have to remember a screening tool is kind of like a thermometer. 
It might tell you that someone has a fever, but it's not going to tell you what they have or if it's anything to be concerned about. And what we're not seeing jails do, and that this was borne out in the Office of Legislative Auditors report on mental health in the jails, is that someone might screen positive, but then they never get that assessment to really dig in deeper in terms of what's going on. Now, granted, some people are only in for a day or two or three days, but for people who are going to be in there for more than two weeks, they really need to do that diagnostic assessment and put together a treatment plan. Well, the average stay, I think, in Dakota County, eight days. So that's probably the same for you know, most of our local jails as well. I did think what the Dakota County Sheriff Tim Leslie was saying, some interesting things. When you think about somebody just getting into a jail, Mm -hmm. is that the best time to really be asking them these questions? Well, I think you need to do it more than once. And so you should do it the first time because you also, also want to make sure that someone's not suicidal. And so that's an important piece. Um, but then you can ask them another, you know, day or two later, um, especially if they're going to be in for a couple of days, to really make sure that there isn't something else going on. And there's nothing that prohibits them from doing that, and I think it makes sense. But I, I do think they needed to, to do it the first time because that is a good screen for suicidality. Okay, so, so, so you actually think that's good. What, what, what the sheriff there in Dakota County was talking about is instituting a regular second check. Yes. You know, three Great or four idea. days in. So maybe if somebody is on, and I don't know if there's a percentage for what percentage of people get arrested are on some kind of, whether it's drugs or medication or uh, alcohol, I, I would think that would have an impact too. Yes, we know that um, generally speaking, that even someone with a serious mental illness, they're probably going to be picked up if they're also, um, you know, if they're drunk, um, if they're perhaps using other, you know, some other illegal substances, their um, their incarceration rate actually goes up. They're at far greater risk than for coming into contact with police. And in terms of, um, so, so they were talking about the screenings, you know, doing a screening, you know, maybe the, that initial screening, which you say is so important to make sure that nobody's suicidal, maybe a few days later. And then there, there was talk about following up on some of these cases afterwards, and I thought that was one of the most interesting proposals. Again, it was the Dakota County Sheriff that was making that. Uh, and they're not doing it now, but right. I thought it was an interesting look at something that, that really would be very a very different approach. I thought it was a really good idea, too, because, again, what all these jails want to do is reduce recidivism. Part of that is really discharge planning, um, which we think includes making that connection with the community mental health provider um, but just really kind of checking up on the person, seeing what's going on, really makes sense. And in this situation, they were really talking about pairing up a mental health practitioner with one of the sheriffs or law enforcement personnel to do that. It makes perfect sense to me. I think it's a great idea. And, uh, you know, I actually, and I want to thank you for responding. I, you know, we, I was, saw you at that news that conference, and then I came back and wrote the story. And I remember hearing about this bill before the legislature that would require all of Minnesota's 11,000 peace officers to undergo, uh, I think it's conflict de-escalation as well as uh, dealing with sort of mental illness or recognizing it, training, and that they'd have to take this training again, 16 hours worth every three years. And I couldn't remember if it had been a law. You were kind enough to you know, write back saying they actually did pass it because you yeah. think of the legislature last year, you think they didn't do anything. But but tell us about this law and, and exactly what it is. Is it exactly what you wanted? What does it do? It sounds like an awfully good idea. It is a great idea. It's not exactly what we wanted, but, you know, it's a good step in the right direction. So it's not really, um, it doesn't lay out exactly how many hours you have to have on each of the topics. 
And the topics also include things like implicit bias um, and racism as well, which, of course, is also important. But they got over $10 million to do this. So the money will go out to the agencies um, who will then make sure that their officers receive that training. The post board, which regulates um, you know, all of the peace officers in the state of Minnesota, is developing some more um, explicit guidelines on what kind of training they actually have to have. So we'll see more detail that in, in that in the months to come, which we think is, again, it's a great idea. People need to have this training, and it helps them in all sorts of situations, right. not just when dealing with someone who's having a mental health crisis. Right. And, and let me ask you, because I, I, we had a... a a topic or a guest on last week um, on this show uh, who was with the Minnesota Autism Society mm-hmm. talking about training for police to recognize autism and how important it was uh, and even the use of an app to, to, to recognize you know somebody with autism. But mm-hmm. it's it just she just said that the education in letting a police officer know if somebody is autistic, what kinds of, they might be doing these repetitive motions, and, and really how much and how meaningful this training was. It, it sounds like this would be, in some ways, potentially so important in, in order to avoid leading to an escalation. Yes, yes, absolutely. Because you have people who are tactically defensive, so you probably shouldn't touch them. <laughs> you know, that would certainly be one step. Um, you know, but also I think police officers are trained to come in, you know, into a situation big and try to resolve it quickly. And that doesn't work as well when someone is having a mental health crisis or someone with autism who is going into a crisis. It doesn't work. you got to slow everything down um, and really kind of keep everything much more quiet to resolve the situation in the most you know, in the best way possible. All right. And let me ask you, I mean, obviously police officers have a heck of a lot on their plate these mm-hmm. days. I mean, what's sort of been the response and, and the input that you got uh, from officers on, on this particular training? Um, I have not met an officer who said they shouldn't get that kind of training. I think they've, they've all said we need this training. Funding was a huge piece of it. How do we fund this and make this happen? But I truly have not met an officer who said we don't need this training. And is there... Um any aspect of it that, that you think might be helpful to the broader public to get some kind of, I don't know, perhaps maybe it's just a PSA, maybe it's you know a YouTube video just for awareness? Well, you know, we, we really try to increase the mental health literacy of the public, and um, we do that through mental health first aid and some other classes. And I think the big thing is really um, the more that we understand mental illnesses, the more that, you know, one of the things that the Ramsey County Sheriff said at the press conference was, we need to have more empathy for people with mental illnesses. And he was absolutely right. So if we're broaching this as trying to understand, trying to be compassionate, um, it, things just turn out very differently. If we see this as a symptom and not necessarily a behavior that someone can control, again, our approach is going to be very different. Um, overall, in terms of the implementation, is there anything that, that you would like to see uh, as the executive, executive director of NAMI in terms of something coming out of the next legislative session? Well, we actually have a bill that would um, do a couple things. One, it would actually provide funding to increase the amount of mental health services and treatment that's provided in the jails. We think that's actually really important. Um, and we also want to do um, really enforce mental health parity. I mean, one of the things that really came out of this conference this week is that we need to continue to build our mental health system. And the more that we build it and ensure you know, fast access to treatment, 
um, the less and the fewer people that end up in our criminal justice system. And we don't really enforce mental health parity right now, which means we have a lot of people with private insurance that is not covering all the treatment that someone needs. And what is the law specifically? Um, Well, we have a mental health parity law, and we have to follow the federal law, but they don't look really at what I would call, well, under the law it's called non-quantitative treatment limits, but it's really making sure that insurance covers like services. So, for example, if you get a knee replacement, they will pay for rehab in a nursing home. But if you're leaving the hospital and you have schizophrenia, they won't pay for residential treatment. That's unequal. And we need to make sure that they're covering those kinds of services. And but and they're supposed are they are they supposed to be able are they supposed to be covering that right now? Yes. And so what we need is stronger language for the Department of Commerce to actually enforce the law. Got it. Um, and, and that's something that's there. And and I think also consumers, especially if you're battling a mental health crisis, I think it's awfully difficult to take on an insurance company. It's difficult to take oh, on an insurance yeah, company yeah. at any level. <laughs> I mean, it's it, it nothing could be more difficult. And it's it's so time consuming, and it's um, yes, it's so hard. It's just Absolutely. so hard, and it's so frustrating, and yes. it's so time consuming. Well, and that's why we want the Department of Commerce to actually get ahead of it and to really review the plans, you know, before they're certified to make sure that they're following the law and not just relying on complaints. And that really is a big part of our bill. Okay. All right. Well, listen, Sue Abderholden, we certainly appreciate your time. Uh, great information and. Good luck with that bill because certainly I think consumers could really benefit from getting uh, some help with that or, or just some advice or else at least at least knowing you've got the right to do this. I think it's so important. Well, thank uh, you so much for having me on, Esme. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Sue Abderholden, she's the executive director of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Uh, thanks, Sue. Take care. All right, folks. Uh, it is 630 in the Twin Cities. We do have to take a break, give you some weather. And then uh, when we come back, we'll talk with an expert on these genetic testing kits. Are they reliable? What do they tell you? What should you know about them? Is there any downside? So keep it right here. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. All right, folks, Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock. Well, have you seen those ads for those DNA testing kits? Have you ever thought about doing it? Maybe you've done it. Maybe you've gotten the test back and have been stunned by the results. That's sort of the hook on some of the commercials. Well, joining us right now is Heather Zierhut. She is an assistant professor of genetic counseling at the University of Minnesota. Uh, to here to talk about this. Uh, professor, am I saying your name correctly? Yes, you said it perfect. Okay, great. Thank you. Let yes. me ask you, okay, so you, you're a professor uh, with the Genetic Counseling Program at the University of Minnesota. Let, let me ask you, what, what, does your, what, do you, what do you do in terms of genetic counseling? Is it to do mostly with health, I imagine? Yes, yeah. So most genetic counselors focus on medical-related genetic counseling, so in really any type of specialty. So cancer, cardiology, um, many women that have gone through prenatal testing or counseling um, have seen a genetic counselor. So really in any area of medicine is where we see genetic counseling. And, and recently, um, now that these genetic tests have been um, available directly to consumers, genetic counselors are being asked to help people interpret and understand them and um, what they mean for their families. All right. And, and so the kinds of testing you you might do, I imagine, I mean, I, and I know people who have... Um sought this, uh, they've had one child who was born with uh, a genetically born mm-hmm. ailment and mm-hmm. are, are, are worried, 
obviously, that, that if they have a second pregnancy, that could happen. I, I assume you see people like that. Right. Yep. We see people for really any questions regarding genetics. So if, if think people are thinking about reproductive, um, if they're thinking about their own medical care, and if they're thinking about things like their family identity. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the kinds of d- genetic testing and screening that you do, I imagine it's it's is it just the same as what these people do or what these test kits do? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, the tests are a little bit different. So medical tests that are done in genetic testing laboratories have certain types of um, regulations that they come and they make sure the quality of the tests are a certain way. So, and that's called clear or cap. And some of these testing companies do have that same type of certification. Others don't. So that is kind of one difference is the level of confidence that we have in the test and the accuracy of the test. And it's one of the things that some of these laboratories have been scrutinized about is making sure that you're giving accurate calls um, for this information. Because ancestry is obviously a little bit different than some of these medically related tests that we're talking about. All right. What um, what are your thoughts about these you know, tests, I guess you just mail in a cheek swab. What are your thoughts about that? these kinds of tests? Yeah, well, I think that there's lots of different reasons why people think about having these ancestry tests. Some of them are really fun. Like, you know, I'm sitting around with my relatives and we want to learn more about our heritage or, you know, I don't know where I'm from. So people that are adopted um, who might be thinking, you know, I want to know a little bit more about where I'm from or a little bit more about my ethnic background. And, um, you know, other individuals are really on a serious journey that they've thought about for a long time. And now this is their opportunity to, say, meet a biological family member. And it's um, kind of really an emotional journey. So there's, I think, a lot of reasons why people take these tests. And I think one of the areas where there is some conflict is when those reasons for getting the testing done are maybe not congruent with people that are seeking the services. All right. And what is... um when you when you do these tests, do you literally just send in that uh, cheek swab? Yeah, yep. So you spit in a tube or you take a little bit of your um, cheek cells, and then when they go to the lab, they, they basically um, look at the DNA, they read it, and then they compare your genes and your DNA with, um, you know, 30 or 40 different populations from all over the world. And by looking at that comparison, then they can tell you what percentage of your genome, say, for instance, came from France or Germany or... East Asia or, um, you know, various different areas so that you can say, this is a percentage, for instance, that I relate to these different populations. Okay. And so people might always sort of wonder, or there was always a rumor that perhaps um, there was a Native American ancestor. Right. Is is that something that they can really pinpoint? Yeah, that's interesting that you asked that question. I went and I looked at mine and I'm 0.3% Native American or East Or East Asian. (laughs) Right. So that there's a, so one of the disclaimers that these tests have is actually that they can't specifically track um, Native American or really sometimes really um, rel- relations that happened in the very near future. So there are some definitely caveats with some of these and that the, their confidence to be able to identify, for instance, certain ethnicities is not very good. So, for instance, I know I, am, I can track my relatives very far back and to be Swiss. But my 23andMe results, for instance, say that I am more French or German or that I have a large percentage that's an other category. So sometimes you can't get as specific as I think some people would like with this testing because um, they're, they're comparing it to broad populations. Okay. Well, let me, and, and we're visiting with Heather Zierhut. She's an assistant professor of genetic counseling in their genetic counseling program at the University of Minnesota. Uh, going back to the issue of um, 
Native American or, or perhaps even East Asian. Are you saying that, that these testings aren't able to pinpoint those two groups? Well, they look really similar. Yeah. So, um, and so I, I, you know, I haven't actually looked at the sequence to see how, how similar they aren't or not, but that is a caveat that the most of the testing companies will say right on their form is that, you know, our genome, there's very slight differences. So, you know, one or two letters in the genome can make a big difference when we're talking about these comparisons. And so there's different pieces or patterns that look very similar and it's hard for us to tell exactly where those differences happened. And, and, and let me ask you, um, well, first of all, what, what is the turnaround on on these kinds of testings? Like if I send it in? Yeah, usually it's a couple months. So I think most of them say six to eight weeks. Okay. Well, okay. Um, and so you get this. Um, are there any sort of downsides that you know of about getting something like this done? I mean, are sometimes people less yeah, than thrilled them, with the results? Yeah, or? we call them DNA surprises. <laughs> Yes. So I think some people have, um, you know, a really the one of the things that I think people when they come back and they're disappointed is if they were, for instance, trying to find relatives back in Ireland and they wanted to pinpoint the exact village, for instance, that they were from. And some tests, if, they, if you know, if you have a family member from Ireland that has taken this test, sometimes they can match you to that person. But if no one from your family has taken this test, then you won't have a quote unquote match. And so in that case, that could be disappointing. Um, on the opposite of that, sometimes there could be a match for a relative that you didn't know existed. And so in those instances, for instance, um, I say I have a second cousin that I've found through this relationship. I didn't know she existed, but, you know, that's not a big deal. But say, for instance, I saw that I had a sibling and I didn't know I had a sibling. Um, for instance, that could be pretty um, startling or upsetting. Um, and that can lead to, obviously, a, a journey that I might not have thought I was going to be taking by, by just looking at my ancestry. Oh, okay. And, and so, um, you know, you mentioned for people who are adopted, mm-hmm. this must yeah. be a, 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 an extraordinary window for them. Yeah, so when these tests first became available, I think a lot of the early adapters, the people who kind of went in really early and were very excited, were a lot of people that were adopted. Um, and people that had been adopted, you know, you know, decades ago. So one of my relatives, um, you know, or one of my, a colleague of one of my relatives, um, found out that, you know, her cousin was adopted and now was 60 years old looking for his mother who was in her 80s. And so these are journeys that people have been thinking about for a long time, and now the technology exists for them to try to find um, their biological family. Right. So you said so. Um, it can actually, if it could actually locate relatives for you. Yes, it can. So there's a there's you can choose to opt into finding relatives, and so some of them, you know, you can share your information. And for instance. I have a second cousin who I share with 3.65% of my DNA with, and she has her name on there. So I can Google her, and I can look for her, and she's a Hollywood producer, so I kind of want to meet her. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's always so, exciting if somebody's yeah. – you know, so, but, but you didn't know – you didn't know – no, she I don't was know your- her personally, but I do know that my family, like a part of my family did go to California. So it, it does make sense that I can write that story and I could even contact her. I can email her via the service. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't know that was an yeah, option in all yeah, this. I mean, that's kind of yeah. cool. It's great. Um, but if you know that ahead of time, if, you know, if you're on that journey and you're searching for someone that, you know, is your, say, biological family, and then that family might not necessarily have went on to the service for that same purpose. And so they're, they're not looking to open that door. 
that's where I think, you know, I or, think there was... Or, or, yeah, somebody, yeah, somebody's not thrilled to find a second cousin. Exactly. Or, or a, yeah. okay, I, I see. And and yeah. how often, I mean, are, are people opting in a lot to that service? Because I guess I'd yeah. heard about that. I didn't realize it was that widespread, though. Yeah. So, well, some of these services have one to two million people on them. So, um, and of those, I think a, a decent percentage of do opt into them. And of that, you know, when we think about, say, adoption or um, even assisted reproductive technology, so sperm and egg donation, that's a, a, a significant, you know, one to two percent of, you know, babies that are being born. Um, and then also, if you think about um, what we call misattributed paternity or paternity that hasn't been disclosed, um, so that can be up to three to five percent of people that actually don't know that their father or their mother is their biological parent. And so um, that is an area that this could lead to a significant number of people having these DNA surprises. Oh, okay. Um, and so in your case, though, you literally found relatives that you didn't know. Um, but the, right. the, these ones over the, you know, it's through the mail, they're not able to track or they can't track medical stuff, can they? They cannot. No, they just show your ancestry. They just show kind of your pieces of your DNA that you have that are the same. Okay, and um, are there ever have there ever been any problems in terms of mix-ups or, or inaccurate results? Yeah, mix-ups are always a possibility when it comes to genetic testing. So you know that can always be an issue. Um, there are some issues with accuracy in regards to some of the calls, um, and they can't get very specific. So some people have gone and done multiple of these tests to try to make sure that they're having correct results. Um, but you know, they're good. The algorithms get better and better over time. So that becomes less and less of an issue. Um, so they're, they're pretty good, uh, for making ancestry calls, at least for the medical information. That's, um, a little bit different. All right. We're chatting with Heather Zierhut. She's an assistant professor of genetic counseling, uh, University of Minnesota. Going back to what you do, um, in terms Mm -hmm. of the medical, um, issues. Yeah. are, Are there people that come to you asking you about getting genetic counseling or finding out whatever is in their DNA profile and they come to you and they end up not doing it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a misconception that when you come to talk about your genetics that you have to have a genetic test done. And that's definitely not the case. Um, Sometimes people just want to know what they can do to understand their family history and get to know that information um, so that they can do something about it. So, for instance, I have a family history of cancer, so then I can go in and I can say, what can I do to prevent myself from, you know, developing this cancer? Do I need to get earlier screens? Do I need to, you know, what can I do? So there's definitely reasons to go to get genetic counseling that don't necessarily involve having a test or getting testing done. All right. and and But on the, on the other hand, you know, for some people, I imagine they don't want to know if they are at Absolutely. risk for a form of breast cancer or a form of, um, okay, can you test for Alzheimer's? Yep, there's different tests for Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and is there one area or one um, ailment that people seem most reluctant? I think it's more for? about, the, like you were saying kind of before, the personal characteristics of um, how you process kind of that information or that um, how you react to that emotionally. So, We know that um, when people come to see us, we kind of call it monitoring or blunting. So monitors are people that want information. They seek information, and that helps them make medical decisions. 
Blunters are people that kind of just want, give me the cut and dry. What do I need to do? And just tell me that I don't want to know any more information. And they do better when you give them medical information in that way. So when we see people, we try to give them just the amount of information that's going to help them reach their goals. What do they need from us in healthcare and from um, genetics? And that's how we hope that we can focus on the individual patients and what their needs are. And and let me ask you, uh, for somebody who's coming to you, you know, the University of Minnesota, obviously an elite institution uh, looking for for this medical background, is is this covered by most insurance? Yeah, actually, most insurances do cover genetic counseling, and some actually require genetic counseling before a genetic test is done so that people are making sure that they're getting accurate information and the correct test. So there's lots of different genetic tests that are out there these days, and we want to make sure that we get you know our patients the right test for them so that they get accurate information to make good medical decisions. And for another, and I know obviously you're not you know in the insurance end of things, but mm-hmm. I think the cost is always a concern for people. Absolutely. In most cases, mm-hmm. do they have to get like a referral? Um, sometimes they need a referral. Um, yep, and sometimes they can um, make those appointments on their own. So it kind of depends. Um, Self referrals are definitely we see a decent percentage of people that come and they just want to you know have services on their own. So you can call and and you know the clinics will help you. At least all of the ones that I know at the University of Minnesota um, will help you determine what your insurance coverage is. And, and could I come in, um, you know, and, and say, hey, I just want to be checked out for everything. I mean, I you know. I, Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, So that's what we call the healthy genome. So when someone is healthy and they just want to know what could I do to proactively um, be able to kind of monitor my health. And um, we would take a family history and we would use that as our first assessment because your family history is actually the best predictor of some of this genetic information. And then if we saw anything specifically, we would target that, you know, that gene or that um, that specific disease. But there are new companies that are coming out with, you know, you could get your genome done for $1,000 or so, and we could help you interpret and understand that information. And uh, do you have any idea, I mean, how much do these ones, these mail-in ones, do you have any idea how much they must might yeah, cost? Yeah, the ancestry testing is about $100. If you want to add some of the other kind of what we call recreational pieces, like, you know, do I like cilantro or not? Or, you know, do does that dress look, you know, blue or beige? Those ones are. Are you serious? They could do yes. that? Yes. Yeah, that's part of one of them as well. There's there's a lot there's a large research component to some of these ancestry tests, which I think is important to talk about because a lot of people don't know that many of these times when they're spitting into their tube, they're also consenting to research. And so these companies are learning a lot about people, including their kind of behaviors and their various different um, kind of idiosyncrasies, if we want to say that. Wow. And so there, there definitely is um, an added piece to that. And so there is some fun to it, um, but there also is some other research going on in the background as well. All right. Well, listen, uh, fascinating stuff. I mean, it's that's yeah. incredible. Um, Heather Zierhut uh, from the University of Minnesota, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Esme. All right, take care. Bye-bye. It is 6.55 in the Twin Cities, the McCarthy Auto World time, again, 6.55, certified McCarthy Cadillacs, now up to 40% off MSRP, shop McCarthyAuto.com, that's McCarthyAuto.com. All right, folks, Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock. We got a lot going on. There's a lot going on this evening, 8 o'clock. We'll visit with my friend, Professor David Schultz. Uh, Really uh, an extraordinary back and forth between uh, the president and the mayor of San Juan, Puerto Rico. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this. 
Uh, but the president calling out uh, Mayor Carmen Yulin Cruz, uh, accusing her of being a poor leader after uh, the mayor basically criticized the federal response to the situation in Puerto Rico. And this is getting an awful lot of attention, folks. The president, I believe, is still scheduled to go to Puerto Rico uh, this week. But um, I'd like to hear what he has to say about that, the fallout of that. Uh, really some extraordinary developments. Also extraordinary, too, uh, a lot of criticism of the, ca- of the president's own cabinet members. Secretary Tom Price had to resign yesterday under fire, not only for the failure to appeal, or repeal and replace Obamacare, but also of his use of corporate jets on the taxpayer dime. And there are accusations against at least three other cabinet secretaries as well. There's also criticism of Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, uh, the White House acknowledging that Mr. Kushner used a private email server uh, while he was uh, a staffer at the White House during the transition. Of course, this was a central, central issue in the entire campaign with the president uh, joining people and joining people to get into the chant, lock her up, uh, criticizing Secretary Clinton for her use of a private email service. So we're a lot to talk about with Dave Schultz, as always. Uh, coming up, we're also going to visit with uh, Joe Tamburino about a new change in the way sexual misconduct cases are handled at the college level. Also, Joe Tamburino, the head of the Downtown Neighborhood Association, he has got some really interesting ideas about what to do to keep downtown safe. I told him he should think about running for mayor. So that all lies ahead here. Uh, you, of course, are listening tonight to the fabulous News Radio 830 WCCO. Esme Murphy until 9 o'clock. A lot more ahead. Keep it right here. News Radio 830. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.